It's been over a day since you were alerted to the group of missing children lost on the mountain. The historic storm relentlessly rages on, and with every passing second, their tracks become buried deeper beneath the snow. You pray they were able to dig into the snow for warmth as you ready your fellow rescuers for action the moment the hurricane-force winds finally cease. But as you look upon the mountain that you know so well, you wonder how a group of high schoolers could possibly survive such a violent storm on top of Oregon's highest mountain. Uh, I think I know where this is going. Oh, it's a disaster. I'm so intrigued. Uh, just wait, it gets worse. We are just the masters of disasters, aren't we? Calamity Janes. Welcome to the Calamity Janes podcast, a weekly disaster podcast hosted by me, Bailey, and... Madison. (laughs) Oh my god, don't sound so excited to be here this week. I'm just feeling a little defeated, okay? She tried this intro two times before I just she told me to just do it. A little defeated. Go on, go on, carry on. Well, I I mean, that's really it. That's who we are. That's what we're about. And I just right off the bat, because I know everybody else is wondering this too, Madison. Did we already cover this disaster? No. Is this the Kernigern Plateau (laughs) disaster? No, it's not. Okay. It is not. I promise it is an entirely different disaster in an entirely different country. Okay. So please, please stay tuned for the rest of the episode. This isn't a repeat because (laughs) we had a conversation before this intro and I said, "Did, did we already do this one? No, we did not already do this one, as I was telling Bailey before we started recording, that this... We're officially out of disasters. We've done them all. 13 13 in and we're done. The rest of them are not worth discussing. Nope. Uh, No, this was... I read about this uh, late during a feeding one night. And it your always baby's feeding. Yes, not, my, you're not like a vampire. <laughs> Sometimes just I just wake up in the middle of the night to eat cheese out of the fridge. <laughs> just when you don't, just to clarify, she has a child. I have a child who, uh, up until recently, insisted on being fed every couple of hours in the middle of the night. But, anyways, uh, yeah, I read about this. Found the link on Reddit, of course, and read about it, and it really stuck with me. And I remember you don't remember this apparently, but I remember talking to you about it on the phone, and you were talking about us finally starting a podcast. And I was like, well, you know what? After reading this, if we did a disaster podcast, then I'd be in. And CJ was born. And this conversation is lost in my memory. I have. No recollection. I just showed up here one day and you're like, speak into the mic. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yep. All right. Are you ready? Now that we got that out of the way, are you ready? I am so ready. Perfect. On May 12th, 1986, 15 high school sophomores from the Oregon Episcopal School and four adults arrived at the Timberland Lodge at 3 a.m. to begin a day hike up Mount Hood. 3 a.m.? Yeah, 3 a.m. You may not know this, but when you want to do a big hike, you start very early. I don't know this because I don't want to do a big hike. Yeah, I know. And all of my very big hikes that I've done have been disastrous because we did not do this. Makes sense. Yes. Makes sense. But it turns out... uh you're not really in a good situation either way if these folks didn't turn out so well. Yes. Well, we'll get into exactly why this was not good. But uh, yeah, so for anyone else out there who is not wilderness inclined, uh, you want to start really early because worst case scenario is being out there tired, hungry, and thirsty at nighttime. 
Uh, Being out there tired, hungry, and thirsty at 4 a.m. sounds pretty awful, too. Well, you should be rested and fed and hydrated when you start, in theory. Okay. Okay, moving on. Oregon Episcopal required all 10th graders to participate in Base Camp, an experiential learning opportunity modeled on the principles of Outward Bound. For those, Bailey, I'm going to get ahead of you, unaware of Outward Bound's core principles, they encourage explorers to test their physical and emotional limits in challenging outdoor adventures in an effort to build inner strength and an awareness of human interdependence. This doesn't sound like something a high school should be doing. This sounds like a combination of like therapy and I don't I don't know, like a self-help personal growth thing that you like do on the side and extra. Yeah, it sounds like a bit much if you ask me. And I actually knew and backpacked with someone a lot like this in college. And it was indeed a lot. Uh, great person, but a lot. Uh, you have to be a very special person to bond with nature like that. So it's supposed to, it sounds like it's supposed to be an above and beyond experience. Like when I go, quote unquote, hike, I put my tennis shoes on and I find some rocks and some dirt and I put my feet on them, walking one foot in front of the other. This sounds like you have an emotional yes. um, experience with Mother Nature. This is like that, like the emotional equivalent of that Reese Witherspoon movie. Uh, Which one? Is it wild? (laughs) Not Sweet Home Alabama? Not Sweet Home Alabama. Okay, I don't know why that's the one that just popped right into my head. Not Sweet Home Alabama. Also not Legally Blonde before you go there. Election? (laughs) Okay, anyways. Yeah, so Outward Bound is a separate thing, but... um, it is, like, very intense. It's supposed to be, like like you said, an above and beyond experience. Um, but outward bound, you're not, you're not stupid. You're prepared. You are trained. You are going out into the wilderness or on hikes with the right equipment. Um, sure. And this base camp program at the school is, like, a mini version of that. They're trying to encourage people to get out. And, you know, protect nature, get to know it, learn yourself, learn your limits. Can I just say, the more you describe this, the more it sounds like a cult. That's what I was thinking the okay. first time I heard it. But I don't, maybe like 80% of our listeners are <laughs> outward bounders and I don't want to offend them. Well, um, <laughs> call your dad. Oh, <laughs> uh, Karen and Georgia would be proud. Okay. Leading up to this excursion, participating students were taught specific techniques that would help them through this climb. In the days before the climb, they eagerly gathered carabiners, seat harnesses, crampons, sleeping bags, tarps, and any other equipment necessary to summit the 11,249-foot mountain. Do you have questions about what carabiners or crampons are? Because I saw your face. Um, no, I think I know what, uh, those things help you climb. And carabiners, isn't that, I think I have that on my keychain. Like, it just helps you connect things to other things. Like yeah. Like a metal clamp. Um, my question was, can I get some perspective on how tall or big an 11,000 foot climb, like, can you liken that to anything? Like, oh, it's the Empire State Building, or, um, oh. like, half of Mount Everest, or. Okay, one second. <laughs> don't. I mean, how tall is the Empire 
State Building. You've never even been to the Empire State Building. How about Sears Tower? A big, tall building. Is it as big as a big, tall building? Okay. The height of the Empire, it is roughly 10 Empire State Buildings. Holy smokes. And they're climbing this in what amount of time? A day. Uh, Out and back? Yeah, they are not, um, they're not starting at zero, though. They're starting at, like, 4,000. Because I that, don't think that makes me feel better. So how did they get to 4,000? Th- that's where the lodge is, where they're starting. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. Okay. It's like, also keep in mind, this is Oregon. It's not. This is not, um, I see. This is not 11,000 feet above where they currently are. It's above no. sea level. That is generally how things are measured. Um, not in drone flying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. I'm just going to move past this part. Thank you. It is tall. Um, it is not like, obviously not Everest tall. You don't need to bring oxygen or anything with you. But for reference, when I went to Colorado and we attempted to climb the 14er and I got, I was blinded. Uh, literally that was 14 and that's kind of like the cool kids club in which I was not because I didn't make it to the top but 14ers are like part of the cool kids club. you weren't the only one who didn't make it though right there were only two people that made it to the top so, so see exactly um and my eyeballs were part of the reason why I didn't make it to the top well that's why you should have had them removed long ago yes you don't need them also, sunglasses are a thing, but your thing too. Well, that wasn't included in your list of carabiner, crimpy okay. thing. Anyways, attending this trip was 42-year-old chaplain Thomas Goman and uh, Dean, sorry, I actually typed dead of residence. It's actually Dean of residence. <laughs> I'm just imagining the butler from Rocky Horror Picture Show, like ushering children through the wilderness <laughs> and dean of residence and student affairs marion mm-hmm. horwell who uh-huh. had never climbed a mountain but uh had lots of moxie and encouragement to offer fellow adventurers sharon spray accompanied Does moxie her- help you survive in the wilderness oh definitely i mean okay. have you ever heard will to live pretty sure will is synonymous with moxie huh okay all right um, uh, Sharon Sprite accompanied her daughter Hillary on the climb. Uh, D, ugh, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce the last name and I couldn't find anyone. Uh, I'm going to say Zunyak, an outward bound instructor came along to prepare for a climb later that year. And Ralph Summers, a 30 year old professional guide met the group at the trailhead. So in all, we have 15 students, one mother, one priest, one administrator, and two guides. Before things get dark, I just want to say this sounds like the beginning of a joke. That's I was going to try to lead it there, but you, you okay. finished it off for me. That's how. That's why this works so well. Where's the bar they walk into? Huh. When the group began their ascent, the temperature was comfortably above freezing at their sorry six thousand foot starting point, and days of storms were in the forecast. Sounds promising. Mm-hmm. Did no one decide to check the weather that day? Group leader Goman who, although a beloved figurehead at the school, had a reckless streak in him. Despite the grim forecast, he was certain the hike could be completed before the worst of it hit. Not before any of it hit, just before the worst of it hit. Where do these people come from? Where do these bad judgment makers... Judgment makers? 
People with bad judgment. Where do they come from? Oregon. How do they get placed on these? They're all from Oregon. Even the one who was in Scotland? Yes. Okay. Them too. Eagerly and optimistically, the group quietly put one foot in front of the other and began their hike in calf-deep snow. Calf-deep. That is midway up your leg. No, I'm aware. (laughs) I am aware of where the (laughs) snow comes up on one's body. It's in the descriptor. It just seems it's incredulity um, that I say. Do they not have snowshoes? Like, they're literally just Mm -hmm. plonking their feet down in the snow? Yeah, I mean, this is not where the issue comes in. They were prepared to do that. Um, That's where the issue would come in for me. I'd be like, (laughs) later, Gators, this is just not my scene. I'll meet you down for a hot toddy at the end of it all. Well, typically, you would want to be using snowshoes or if it were icy crampons. Uh, Okay, hold on. Please explain what a crampon is. I knew you you didn't know what it was. I had a totally different vision of what it was in my head. What is a faker. A crampon, it's like spikes that you would put on the bottom of your shoe to help oh. you in ice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you got See, it? Truly, truly, yes. I, okay. I, now I know what you're talking about. It's just when you say crampon, that's just not what I envision. It was Do you something tell? that clamp. I just It's a clampy thing that helps you climb other things, similar to a, basically a carabiner, okay. even though we already established that a carabiner is a carabiner. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it does help you climb things. It would help you climb a, like a wall of ice, I suppose. They're very, very helpful for ice. But they're, they specifically go on your feet. Yes. Yeah, that's the core piece that was missing for me. They're a footwear item. Yes, they indeed are. Uh, Another quick equipment question before we move on. Snowshoes. Are they like tennis rackets? What do do they look like these days? These days, they... um, The one time I used snowshoes uh, when I attempted to hike the 14er, um, they are long. They are not as wide as a tennis racket, but they're just like a long netted kind of like almost an oval sort of shape okay so like kind of like the head of a tennis racket but more elongated yes a little bit yeah no one's just tying rackets to their feet and is that is that a cartoon where did i get that from yes well certainly cartoons but i'm sure back in the day they they were a little bit more uh back in my day (laughs) yeah Yeah, back in your day. Yeah, back in my day. Uh, They were a little bit more, what is the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Rudimentary? Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Okay. After a few hours of peaceful hiking, and as the sun began to rise over the horizon, mom and daughter Hillary and Sharon decided to turn back when Hillary developed a stomachache. Despite Goman's attempts to pressure Hillary into pushing through, because base camp is all about pushing your physical limits, she was certain she couldn't continue and made the fateful decision to return to the trailhead with her mother. And Go Gomes Go this Goman. Guy, that, Goman, um, he's the bad judgment guy, right? Yes, he is. Okay, he's the school's priest, and uh, he everyone loves him, and he's like a pretty young guy overall. So everyone really, really likes him. Um, but he is reckless. He's mm-hmm. definitely not of sound judgment, as we will see. So at a 7,000-foot warming station, two more students turned back after one began to develop cramps. 
Uh, I like to think this is the first and maybe only time period cramps saved someone's life. Yeah. Um, they were explicitly period cramps. No, I'm editorializing a little bit there. But oh. we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll call it all the same. So actually, period cramps might have never, still never saved anyone <laughs> from anything. Just let me have this, okay? Okay, I will. Um, Question, what does a warming station look like? Like, I'm envisioning a bus station where they have warming lamps at the top. Honestly, I'm not sure. It's probably just an enclosure. It's probably okay. just a place to get out of the wind. I gotcha. tr- truthfully don't know. Of all of the things to look into, that was like the very bottom of my list. Well, I can't imagine why. Around 11.30 a.m., D. Zuniak, uh, the outward bound professional, developed mild Ooh, developed mild snow blindness and turned back on her own. Been there. That was a smart decision. Now our group is down to 13 total. So, I mean, this is kind of promising because I know this is not going to end well, that people are kind of like eliminating themselves. And it, with every person you say leaves, I'm like, okay, this might not be so bad. Yeah, that, yeah, that is the feeling that I got as I read this article too. Cool. In the two hours after uh, Zuniak's departure, that bad weather that I mentioned earlier made a grand entrance. Goman, the ever-daring and apparently blissfully ignorant priest, was determined to get the group to the summit. Sorry. Yeah, because it's probably cold. He's like, okay, kids, let's... Ugh. Eventually, as everyone reached 11,000 feet at 2 p.m., so we started at 3 a.m., now it's 2 p.m., Summers, the professional guide, convinced Goman to lead the group back down the mountain. He had gone ahead 30 or 40 feet and knew nothing good awaited the group at the summit. The group should have been able to follow a nearly straight path down the mountain, but that did not happen. I'm assuming you're going to tell me why, because it doesn't make sense now. Yeah. So the storm was there. They said you could not tell the difference between the white of the sky and the white of the snow under your feet. I think this gives me the kind of anxiety that flying on a plane gives you. Yeah. Like the disorientation that and then being so exposed and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That I This, I think, is how you feel when you fly. Sure, sure is. Yep. 15-year-old Patrick McGinnis, who was the youngest in the group, struggled in the cold. By 3.30 p.m., he began exhibiting symptoms of hypothermia and toppled over in a desperate attempt to go to sleep. No, that's late-stage hypothermia, isn't it? Uh, yeah, he, it sounds like he started to slur his speech. He started to slow down, topple over, and then at that point, he just, his body was telling him rest, rest, mm-hmm. conserve. With visibility at most 30 feet, sticking to the path as climbers began to feel the effects of the storm was nearly impossible. The students surrounded McGinnis, and senior Susan McClave removed her jacket and boots and crawled inside the group's only sleeping bag with McGinnis in an attempt to raise his core temperature. This selfless act would prove fatal for Susan. But not Patty. Pat. Pat. Moving on. Summers prepared a warm, sugary drink for McGinnis with the group's field stove. Although effective, this took an hour of precious time. Right, they're just chilling out there, like nobody else is continuing with this happening? No. I mean, I think they felt like there was safety in numbers. Mm, um, I guess, yeah. Because also, there are, I think, three adults at this point, and all the rest are all high schoolers. There, So there's also, like, a sense of duty. I, there are so many more kids that, yeah, like, no adult wants to leave the kids that are struggling Right. And they don't want to send kids off in front of them 
when they can't even find the trail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> is the priest panicking through all of this? Is the priest being like, does he realize at this point, we might have made a little oopsie? Well, Goldman was starting to feel mild uh, hypothermia as well. So Summers and McClave began leading the group down the mountain using a compass that Goman had incorrectly set to a heading that was 20 degrees off course. Come on! Yeah. Come on! He was beginning to feel the effects of hypothermia. At 7 p.m., Summers made the executive decision to dig in at 8,200 feet. So when you're exposed like this and you don't have a tent or something like that, your best bet is to dig into the snow. Literally dig, like hands and knees, you're burrowing into the snow. Into a cave. Gotcha. In about an hour, Summers and Goman had managed to dig a cave that was roughly six by eight feet wide and four feet tall. That takes a lot of energy, six by eight feet? It's huge. I mean, wow. yeah, it, it is really, really big. In total- Andrew, sorry, just no? quick. Go. Andrew and I recently binged watched the latest season of Alone, which is, for those who aren't familiar, kind of a survivalist oh, show. It. It's amazing. And- I've never thought about my day in terms of calories in, calories out like these people do. Every move they make is strategically done according to how much food they have in the bank and whether or not it is worth it calorically to go get. So as you're to go get other food. So as you're talking about this, I'm just thinking that sounds like it takes so much energy to expend to dig this Mm -hmm. shelter so much especially when your body's already fighting to stay warm yeah just existing in a cold temperature like that takes so much energy Mm -hmm. in total the cave could fit six of the 13 climbers six their body heat began to melt the walls of the cave creating a panic inducing slushy floor that only amplified the feeling of claustrophobia Breathing became laborious and terror set in. With the cave only able to hold less than half the group, they set up a rotating system requiring several to endure hurricane force winds at any one time. Well, and once you step outside, you're now wet because you've been Mm -hmm. sitting in a slushy mixture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the other thing. Staying dry, very important, I've learned. Dry is key. Exactly. Yes, very important. I once had to thaw my shoes and socks out over a fire. It was not fun. Early on May 13th, so this is the next day, because we left on the 12th, rescuers were alerted of the missing school group that had failed to return home from the Stormy Mountain. Rescuers quickly began gathering at the trailhead, but were forced to wait until the 103 mile per hour winds subsided. This was truly finding a needle in a haystack, or more like finding a group of ants on the back of a polar bear or something. It was, I don't know, you can come up with something better than that, but it was (laughs) really, really freaking hard to find a group of people in whiteout conditions on a very large mountain. Did they... Did anybody else have any idea how big the storm was going to be, or did they solely rely on Goman? Uh, I think everyone knew the storm was supposed to be pretty bad. They were just very confident that this hike would not be such a big deal, that they'd be able to make it back just as it was starting to get a little stormy. This turned out to be like one of the worst storms that has ever happened in Oregon. That's the thing. A hundred plus mile an hour winds, and it's like, surely someone... 
consulted the Weather Channel or yeah. something before. I'm not sure what forecasting was really like in the 80s, how predictable it would be. But I do know. Back in the Stone Age. Y- yes, exactly. 40 years ago. Uh, okay, I was born in 89. Hush. <laughs> um but I do know that conditions on a mountain like that do really change in an instant. You, mm. um, uh, yeah, it changes instantly. It's very scary sometimes. Winds can just pick up, then they'll just disappear. You could be swallowed up by clouds. Um, it's, I'm never going hiking, literally ever. You could not pay me to go hiking. My experience hiking in Scotland was nothing but lovely. <laughs> no. Because apparently it could have turned on a dime and been horrible. Yeah. Well, those mountains were a little bit. Those were much smaller than than this. But anyways. Because they were the, what are they called? The. (laughs) What are you doing with your hands? I'm trying to come up with the word. Highlands. Okay. They're called the highlands. They're just big, big hills. I mean, there are mountains. Okay. Moving on. The winds had viciously blown away any signs of climbers on the mountain, and even calmer winds prevented rescuers from searching the mountain in a helicopter. Meanwhile, after making it through their first night, Summers determined Goman was cognitively impaired, finally, and set off to find help. Molly Shula, one of the Wait, they're letting him be <clears throat> in charge this whole time? No, I think they're all just rallying. I think everyone is fighting to keep themselves and each other alive. And unity, I suppose. That yeah. No one wants to splinter and strengthen numbers. Okay, I see, I see. It's just when you say that they, he's like finally, his cognitive abilities has made him yield to the wisdom of the greater group. I'm like, oh my God, they've and just been. I think the whole mission of the night was just dig in, stay warm. And that was that. I don't really think he's been doing that much recently, but I think once they made it through the night and the other professional in the group was like, okay, you're clearly not getting it together uh, I gotta go. So Molly Shula, one of the group's more advanced climbers, who is, I think, a senior in high school, so still only like maybe 18 years old, oh. volunteered to go with, and the pair trudged bravely into the storm. After hours of a slow and steady descent, the pair stumbled onto Mount Hood Meadows, a ski resort two miles east of their starting point at Timberline. Uh oh. They were severely off course, but saved. They completely lucked in to just finding a random lodge. So, if they had actually stayed the course, would they have made it back if they hadn't gotten disoriented? Probably, yeah. It, it, apparently, uh. from what I've heard, this trail is like not that awful. Like it, it should. They should have been able to go up and back in a day without issue. But, but. I guess to be two miles away from your initial starting point, like that's a pretty significant deviation, which makes me think they could have made it back had they only been on the right trail. Yeah, they, I think they could have, because it sounds like they were going up and down the mountain. And after they, their incorrect heading on the compass was given to them, they were going sideways on the mountain. But when it's whiteout conditions and um, you're just trying to find steady ground there, because there are also really dangerous spots too. There are spots that could give way. There are like, uh, like places that you could fall into. So they're trying their hardest to recognize certain landmarks while also just trying to find anything. 
Go on. Um, when asked about the group's condition on the mountain, Molly was optimistic and said that although the cave system was not going particularly well, morale was good. They were passing around hats and scarves and things to keep each other warm. Because, uh, so I found this out, uh, this article that I read, uh, that was my primary source for this was from Outside Magazine and they linked a, um, like, I don't even know if I'd call it a documentary, but a news station several years ago put together all of the footage that they had from the rescue, from talking to, uh, like, anyone who was involved in this situation. They didn't narrate over it or anything. They just put, like, 53 minutes together of all the footage they had from when this happened. And they interviewed Molly and Summers when they made it back. And, uh, I initially thought that it was a different set of people because they were in really good spirits. They looked pretty okay, but yeah, they were very optimistic and said, they'll be fine. We just got to get to him. Everything's going to be okay. It was not. Um, wow. I, yeah, it's just crazy to think that these two people look so, and there were people at, obviously, to tell to tell someone the state of what everyone is this one was at this ski lodge yeah yeah there were people there and they knew okay. that these people were missing so they were ready they were hoping okay. that people were going to start showing up which they kind of did but not not nearly enough when we still have 11 out there you mean by people showing up you mean um, hikers aid. Oh, hikers yeah. who had followed them? Well, they were hoping the rescuers were hoping that climbers were going to start showing oh, up anywhere. I see. They were hoping that they were just fighting the storm down the mountain. Right. Um or they were hoping that they were able to dig in, but in that cold and knowing that they were prepared for a day hike, mm-hmm. they also knew that time was very was against the them. Yeah. The 11 remaining climbers spent the next 2 days desperately attempting to maintain the structural integrity of the cave. On the group's second night on Mount Hood, Allison Litzenberger bravely exited the cave in an attempt to clear the entrance for airflow. Erin O'Leary and Eric Sandovic followed her, but the cave mouth sealed quickly and the three were left outside while the remaining eight climbers were trapped inside beneath four feet of snow. So this is two days after the other two hikers made it. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're we're talking day three, yeah. Ever, like total. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. By two a.m. the next morning, the weather finally cleared, and rescuers immediately began a more thorough search of the area. Just after sunrise, Allison Litzenberger and Aaron O'Leary were found curled into the fetal position in an attempt to stay warm. Their core temperatures were in the forties. Eric was found not far away. He had collapsed on top of the cave entrance while trying to get back in. There's, so in this documentary, there's a little bit of confusion about what exactly happened to the three survivors. I use that term very loosely here once they were found, um, because although they had a core temperature, I think I saw that it was 47 for one of them. That's obvious. There's... They interviewed someone working at the hospital who said, if they are not dead, we want them. So they were going to try literally everything they possibly could to save anyone that they found. But they also said, 
I don't think anyone's ever come back from that. And so Mm -hmm. initially they said we found three fatalities, but then it was only two. And then they were kind of unsure about were they DOA or so. Yeah, it's not quite as important to the story, but it was horrible being a parent in that situation, Mm -hmm. hearing three of them have been found, some of them are alive, no wait, none of them are alive, but we're going to take them to the hospital anyways, and so that's Meanwhile, they hadn't found the the rest of them. Okay, gotcha. Summers went up in a helicopter with rescuers to try to direct them to the group's cave, but it was difficult for him to pinpoint exactly where it was, kind of for obvious reasons. As it turns out, their initial landing was literally feet from the cave entrance but they redirected their search efforts because they had no way way no way of knowing no idea um under four feet of snow could people have heard the helicopter surely from what i've heard no one talks about hearing a helicopter gotcha Finally, uh, there's a lot. Also, there I read somewhere there were like 5,000 man hours put into this between all of the rescuers that were there. So I'm skipping a lot of like in this documentary, it feels like it goes on a lot longer because it's just raw footage of helicopters going out, interviewing rescuers as they come in. Um, so this was tireless. Like they really put their heart and soul into finding everyone. And they were very upfront with the fact that we have to think about it like a job. We can't think about the fact that it's kids because then that doesn't help anyone. Mm -hmm. Finally, at 5.38 p.m. on Thursday, only 22 minutes before the scheduled end of that day's search, a rescuer's avalanche pole hit something solid and everyone began frantically digging. Core temperatures for those in the cave ranged from 37.4 to 74.12 degrees. Whoa. Yeah, depending on their gear and position within the cave. There were only two survivors, one of whom would lose his leg several months later. Oh, man. Yeah. The school's uh, commissioned inquest found Goman, who did not make it. He died. Mm. Uh, they found him and, uh, oh, I'm sorry. The school's commissioned inquest found Goman, the school's priest and group leader to be primarily at fault for failing to turn back in bad weather. Mm. Even then, a lot of the parents and other students were defending him saying he never would have deliberately put anyone's lives in danger. It was just a bad call. Um, I personally think from what I've read, it goes a little bit past a bad call. I think there was some disregarding of, uh, I think it was negligent. It was just pure negligence. Well, and it's kind of like, again, not real sure high school is the appropriate venue for this because the whole point is to stretch your boundaries, like make your, get out of your physical, mental comfort zone. And when it comes to things like, which I get, people, kids, you got to grow. You got to learn. But this seems extreme. And when you get to do things like this, there's a fine line between growth and comfort and recklessness. Yeah. Well, and also the whole premise of like pushing your boundaries and getting out into nature, I think is like you're choosing to do it. You are not mandated by your school's program yeah it's an authority and like a yeah exactly um one of the parents of the deceased child said that compared the hike to a death march 
Oh, yowza. Yeah. Fi- uh, families of the seven deceased children were offered settlements, with Patrick McGinnis's family filing a wrongful death suit in September. 48 hours before the first court date, all the parties negotiated a settlement. In another lawsuit filed against Summers, who was one of the um, the climbers that made it back early and was continuing to go out with rescuers tirelessly to try to find everyone. Um, so they were sued. So was Oregon Episcopal. Summers was found not liable and the school was deemed negligent in order to pay $500,000. The survivors and climbers that turned back before the worst of the storm hit have dedicated their lives to helping their fellow man their accomplishments range from social work, medicine to sorry, social work and medicine to the Peace Corps. There has never been another school sponsored expedition to Mount Hood. Like from that school or any school? That school. Wow. And they have a Memorial Day every May where alumni come back and um, yeah, it's it's a big deal. So that is the 1986 Mount Hood disaster. Oh, it's so tragic. So tragic. And for those who perished and the survivors, like we talk about when you're in a situation like this and there's survivor's guilt that, you know, Mm -hmm. because you had a stomach ache or your cramps that may or may not have been (laughs) cramps. Exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot. It's hard for everyone to handle. I I can't even begin to imagine. So that is uh, but the the article is moving and covers beautifully so many more aspects of everything that happened here. So highly recommend reading the article, which will be linked in the show notes to Outside Online Magazine. What? How does one become like a rescuer? Like the people who jump into action when it come to find out entire hiking parties don't come back. What are the qualifications? I assume you're like a mountaineer, but are you also like an EMT? Who are these people? I think there's probably some of that. I know someone who wanted to, who was an EMT and his goal was to become someone who was in helicopters rescuing people on mountains. Um, but I also am not sure how much of that is search and rescue versus Mm. just rescue. Um, I have no idea. I would not even begin to speculate. I do think you have to be superhuman though to do it because, wow. Yeah. And like, where do they come from? Are they constantly on standby? If you are (laughs) a mountain savior, official job title, um, can you email us? Can you like, let us know how Uh, that works? I would love to know more about that process. And we want to interview you. Mm-hmm. Email us and then we want to interview you and ask you all the questions. So Bailey and I had talked after – or two weeks ago uh, when we ended the note – or sorry, when we ended the show on such a bummer about – like almost every episode. Yes. Hey, listen. I try my best. Sometimes it cannot it's, be helped. It's a podcast about disasters and we notice. Yes. So we decided we're going to try something. Let us know if you love it or hate it or if you want us to tweak it a little bit. But uh, at least once a month, we are going to talk about a charity or cause or fund or something along those lines that uh, we could help draw attention to, that people could donate to or learn more about in an effort to 
bring it bring it back around. Bring it uh, a more positive note. And so that we can be the helpers that we so admire in uh, the disasters we talk about. Because everything we talk about is in the past. Um, it It's done. It's part of why we feel so powerless at the end of it all. Because all you can do is sit and say... What could we? What could have done better? But this allows us to look at what's currently going on and how we ourselves can uh, can help out. Exactly. Do what we can. Exactly. So, um, and if so, big current event sort of things are going on, we might add one. We might switch up what we're doing. But for right now, I wanted to find something that was semi-related to the disaster that we talked about today. So I found a nonprofit called Hike It Baby, which I thought was really fun, um, originating in Portland, actually. Uh, But it is basically, here's a little blurb about it. Um, Portland, Oregon mom Shanti Hodges found that reconnecting with nature and making friends on the trail could alleviate her postpartum depression. And provide an enlightening environment for her son. I Get Baby is volunteer-based. It's grown to more than 300 branches in 45 states, offering more than 4,000 monthly guided hikes through small towns and big cities. With its motto, Raising Kids to Love the Outdoors, it ushers in a new era of adventurous families who value active offline experiences, be it an urban park stroll, a forest frolic, or a beach walk. So love it. Yeah. So it's a way to get involved in your community, connect with other families, help kids learn how to safely and uh, just get involved in the outdoors, learn to love it, learn to appreciate it, learn to treat it properly. (laughs) But uh, but I really thought it was a cool, um, a cool cause. And I like that it was started to help her alleviate her postpartum depression. I love that it it's not just about hiking and getting outside but like the the it's about the personal growth and you know helping you emotionally and physically from postpartum depression or whatever mm-hmm. you know you might be struggling with um and using hiking in that way and perhaps I mean again I don't know anything about this program that these people but it just sounds like it might be a little healthier a little safer I a agree. less extreme than the other one so yeah I I really I do I think this is a really a really great um nonprofit yeah and well sorry I was no. gonna bring up blood but if you want to talk more about it uh, well, they just, if you take a look at their website and their mission, they value diversity, um, equity, they're inclusive. They seem like good people. It's really just a way to connect with others in your area, raise your kids to love and appreciate the outdoors. And you're right. It's a bonding experience for you, your family, those around you. Uh, it promotes emotional and physical growth without... And well-being. Yes, without putting you someplace terrifying in a scary situation. Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, another thing that I wanted to add, um, and my, maybe this will be an ongoing thing that we just keep a link to in the show notes, uh, because it's it's like an evergreen, always on, but there's especially an acute need for it now, is blood. Mm-hmm. Um, there is actually a national blood shortage, and so if you can donate, um, we encourage you to. We'll link to the Red Cross down below. Um, or, of course, many cities have their own or states have their own local blood banks and blood organizations. So 
find the one that's most comfortable with the Red Cross tends to be most widely available and they need it. They need your blood if you can give it. It's super easy, by the way. It's like they make it so once you kind of get in their system and you set up an appointment, it's like 30 minutes. In and out. You, yeah, in and out. They have TVs most places. You bring your phone. You do the work. Snacks. You, Think the snacks. Think of the snacks. Think of the snacks. And then they set you an appointment up so you can like donate every eight week, eight weeks of its blood, even more frequently if it's plasma. You O-type blood blood people, people who have blood. Mm-hmm. So all humans. <laughs> um, you especially. Get your O-blood and donate it. Or my fellow A-positivers out there. I mean, yeah, everyone. Everyone with blood, but like What's especially your blood type? I can't forget. For someone who used to be on regular rotation, I have no idea what blood type I am. I know I'm A positive because when you're pregnant, they draw your blood constantly. They did me too. Still have no idea. Wow. Um, yeah, guys, it's the snacks, the sense of community, sense of purpose, the snacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time I went to give blood, I got a coupon for a free slushie at Sonic. Yeah, tons of incentives. These days, you might also get a COVID antibody test automatically Ooh. for free with your donation. So if you're ever curious, they will likely offer it to you. My coupon so. expired in 2012, and I gave blood in 2020. <laughs> They'll probably still accept that. <laughs> probably. Uh, anywho, do it. Love it. All about it. Well, thanks, Moo. This feels, um, obviously, this was a tragedy, but now we have our assignments. Go, yes. go forth, help, and we will catch you next week for a different disaster. Yes, and thank you to those who have been emailing us and recommending disasters or giving us your firsthand accounts. Yes, you guys, we so appreciate that. First, that you would take the time to listen and then email us. Who, who emails You guys anymore? do not understand how excited we get when people Truly. email us. The text chain back and forth between the two of, have you seen the email today? We got an email. It's, it's like Blue's Clues. We it. just got a letter. <laughs> and we ju- it's literally a dance like that in our text messages. So please do that. Uh, it's so much fun for us. And we really appreciate hearing and reading everything you guys have to say. And rate, review, subscribe, add us to your, I think Pandora does like collections or something. Ooh, curious. I, yes, it's very interesting. Um, We're going to be on YouTube soon. We decided, we realized we there's no reason not to put the audio up on YouTube. So if you have premium and you just like to listen to audio on the background it'll be up there soon all of our episodes so share it shout it what i I don't have a third i don't have a third okay all right cool 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 cool, cool. okay (laughs) asymmetry we're just gonna go with (laughs) awesome shoot it shard it shard oh (laughs) and that's our time folks we'll see you next week Okay, it's it's time. You need to go to bed. Okay, okay, okay. We're we need to cut her off. Let's just Yeah, well we're cutting all of that out. You are not Oh, I'm so (laughs) including your kisses. No. Please don't. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Catch you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.